What would you do if you got scammed? Would you suffer in silence or would you do something about it? Well, I got scammed once and this is the story of what I did. I'm Justin Sales, the host of The Wedding Scammer, a true crime podcast from The Ringer. And for seven episodes, we're hunting a con man, a guy with a lot of aliases, a guy who's ruined a lot of weddings. And with the help of some friends, I just might be able to catch him. Listen to The Wedding Scammer on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Mint Mobile. If you've had it with your overpriced wireless plan with its insanely high monthly bill and unexpected overages, then listen to this. For a limited time, wireless plans from Mint Mobile are $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan. That's unlimited talk, text, and data for $15 a month. Wow, right? To get this new customer offer, just go to mintmobile.com slash watch. That's mintmobile.com slash watch. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower, above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for more details. I need support staff to clear the room. Stand up and walk. Now. Hello and welcome to The Watch. My name is Chris Ryan. I am an editor at TheRinger.com and joining me on the other line. No. Nope. You're right here. Hello. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> Should I keep going? <laughs> He's the heart of the TVA. It's Andy Greenwald. Your behavior today is kind of variant-esque. It, it, it is. It's like my... My, my B-15 Chris here. I, I'm waiting for a like trench-coated version of you to calmly walk up behind you and purge this inefficient version. Sometimes I wish that would happen. Mm-hmm. Andy, it's great to see you. Today we're talking about the fourth episode of Loki. I think it's the fourth okay. episode. It's called The Heart of the TVA. We're also going to talk a little bit about Errol Morris's John le Carre documentary mm-hmm. that's on Apple TV. It's called Pigeon Tunnel, mm-hmm. or The Pigeon Tunnel. So a lot to chat about there. Usually we do a little bit of news at the top. Obviously, the big news coming out of the world of television in Hollywood this weekend was the um, very sad passing of Matthew Perry at the age of 54. Um, he died in Los Angeles. Bill spoke at length about this on his podcast. I don't think either of us were like ever um, big friends, like not not fans. I mean, I've seen friends like probably multiple times. Have you? Yeah, just because of like it, we def I definitely did a friends rewatch during the pandemic. Really? I mean, I rewatch I, I would I would basically watch anything during the pandemic. That's interesting. See, I was about to say, as much as I loved his performance as Chandler on Friends during the original run, I've never rewatched I don't think I've rewatched a frame of that show. Well, this is why you're the best. You know, you're you're your commitment or, to television. Or it's why I'm the worst. <laughs> um, but yeah, that was like really the 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 major thing. I mean, I spent most of the weekend the most time I spent in any one place mm-hmm. was the five hours I think I spent at the Arrow Theater in Santa Monica for mm-hmm. the horathon that they have there every yeah. year. And so this year I went and um, I watched Dolls and 1990s Frankenhooker. Mm. So I just wanted to get myself in the spirit. And I think I'm there after Frankenhooker. I think, you know, again, our listeners deserve a peek under the hood. Uh, you and I had dinner plans. Mm-hmm. And then I got, and by the way, this is actually going to, you're going to appreciate this. I think it's good to, to to blow you up like this because when Chris needs to cancel a dinner plan day of, he didn't. He doesn't text. You you I called. called. You picked I called. up the phone no, like a like grown I, up. I, I have this other thing going and on. You're like it's either you or Frankenhookers. <laughs> if there's one thing you know about CR, it was. I mean, you know what it was? It did remind me yeah. of a time in this in this country where we could truly make things that were special, mm-hmm. like Frankenhookers. But like, just make a movie that says what it does on the package. You know? Totally. Although I guess you know we do that. Like Five Nights at Freddy's, I imagine, is five nights long. Well, let's hope. I mean, <laughs> any be... any Five Nights at Freddy's talk in your household? I don't even know what that is. It is the number one film in the world. Well, right I'm a now. I'm a TV specialist, <laughs> as you said a moment ago. In the world? Yeah, globally. Like the China BO has been released, and they're like, five I think Nights it at made 170 million dollars or something over the weekend, or 130 million dollars over the weekend. It made 70 million domestic box office. And what is it about? An adaptation of a video game about a Chuck E. Cheese. Sorry, I fell asleep. Go on. A Chuck E. Cheese-esque recreation center, Mm -hmm. I guess, where uh, the animatronic things come to life and kill you. It's a good idea. Yeah. Have you seen this? Uh Uh-uh. It's on Peacock, though. Day and date. And it still made 70 million. What was your... (laughs) Peacock's like, what do we got to do to make 70 million? (laughs) Jesus. Um, What was your... 
involvement or engagement with animatronic pizza restaurants as a child? Not a ton. I was a little bit prone to car sickness. And oh. uh, after one particularly Uh-oh. brutal uh, side of the road experience after Chuck E. Cheese, I think my parents were like, we're going to wait a little while. And by the time I think I righted the ship, got that yeah. inner ear thing taken care of. <laughs> okay. No, I was actually, it was like, you know, you'd be in the back seat. Mm-hmm. And they'd be like, why don't you read a little bit to like, oh. stop talking? And then, <laughs> this is such only child shit. And then I would get sick and then, you know, all the pizza and soda would come right back up. Wow. Yeah, I I just think there's... But I do have a, a great appreciation for animatronics as a, as a, a kid who went to Disney a couple of times and as a kid. I, I think there's something... I, there's probably no greater disparity between what you thought something was as a child and then what you could see it to be as an adult than an animatronic pizza restaurant. Mm-hmm. Because I think Chuck E. Cheese was like, I can still access the electricity of excitement at the thought of going to this place where there were video games, pizza, a ball pit for Mm -hmm. some reason, and a show. And who doesn't love dinner and a show, you know? And yet now I also think back to like, these things were so prevalent that in in Wilkes-Barre, PA, where my grandparents lived, my grandmother, Sylvia, who, you know, not, not a big lover of, me or things <laughs> took me, I think, more than once to like the local knockoff, which I think was called Celebration Station. Yeah, I and, remember Celebration Station. And it wasn't Chuck E. Cheese, so it wasn't like a mouse. I feel like it was a bear and a rat or something. And I can only imagine that it was somehow like worse than Chuck E. Cheese. And she took me there. And this is a woman who only ingested coffee throughout the day. <laughs> She woke up with a percolator of coffee, and then at lunch, she would order an iced coffee, yeah. and then wind down the day with a nice cup of coffee. With Baileys or anything to take no, the edge off? never. No? Never. And she was sitting there while these robots sang at me. It's Childhood is horrifying. This is why the West Coast has made me so soft, is that yeah. I, I truly want that Agent Dale Cooper shit where I'm just, like, taking down diner coffee all day long. Yeah. But now I feel like if I have any caffeine after, like, 11 a.m., Basically, like my hair is on fire for the rest of the day. Should we do, because I've noticed an uptick in stunt journalism, which I support. Mm-hmm. And what I mean by an uptick, I mean, I saw that Vulture sent someone to like stalk New York City restaurants until Taylor Swift came in. Or well, she to, went, it was Rachel Handler. She, yeah. she went to every restaurant that Taylor Swift had been photographed at. It's, this is great stuff. Have you been to Via Carrata? Yeah, it's great. Okay. I thought her article made it seem like it was more theme parky. I think that's a really nice restaurant. Rita Sodi and Jody Williams, they do great work in New York. <laughs> Truly great. Uh, but is this you? This is my build up to my. invite or something? Sure. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I'm not watching TV. A little chef's table. Might as well go out to dinner. A little, little the chef sending something out just from the kitchen. Oh, how kind. <laughs> no, I'm saying to you, Chris, the stunt journalism I want is I want to get you absolutely yoked on Cortados uh-huh. and then spend a day at the Chuck E. Cheese in, you know, uh, Simi Valley. <laughs> And then you report back, and that's a podcast. You yourself said we're 10 days out from, like, high-quality TV returning. Yeah. We, I, we, Andy and I were talking about how we're in a little bit of a, a valley, I think. Not like Simi Valley. No, not like Simi Valley. Where a murder at the end of the world, the Burt Marling show, the curse is coming. Mm-hmm. You know, there's some there's some cool stuff coming. But right now, we, we work with what we have. And, you know, I, I, I've enjoyed... What I've seen of bodies on Netflix, I've um, I got to get to that. I'm interested. You know, a lot of people are are very into the fall of the House of Usher. I think I hit a little bit of a Mike Flanagan wall. You were a big supporter. No, I am a huge. I, I really, really admire his stuff, and mm-hmm. I really like. I actually quite like Midnight Mass mm-hmm. and Bly Manor and like the stuff from before. It's just that I think it's a very deliberate, kind of glacially paced kind of way of making TV you know mm. dr- drama and i just was not in the mood for fall of the house of uh, the usher like right this moment but uh, i am going to check it out i've also heard you say numerous times that you're hoping that hollywood will finally tackle our nation's opioid uh pandemic i would say that personally i do not find opioid dramas particularly compelling it's it's uh it's no longer a small sample size. There have been three four maybe five no, like especially it seems like netflix seems to to, to literally crank out an mm-hmm. opioid thing every couple of months here. Uh, yeah, I'm not, it's not, not my number one thing that I like watching stuff about. I just don't find it that it really gets to the heart of the matter. Yeah, I think that's fair. What do you want to talk about? You want to talk about Loki? You want to talk about... So I was going to ask you, though, mm. is like, you know, 
are the kids are your kids getting mm-hmm. your older one getting to the point where they're like what's up with the scary movies no she's my daughter okay <laughs> no no she did see the uh taylor swift movie though oh did she like it loved it okay loved it um i had i feel like we as people should just when we do things that are so obvious like when we walk into rakes that we put in front of ourselves we should be docked by the universe for it so we were talking about taylor swift the other day and she was like taylor swift's really good and i was like yes and she's like taylor swift's really popular and i was like 100 percent. and i was I, I saw it coming. This is one of the things about parenthood is you see the trap, but you just walk towards it. And I was like, you know, in many ways, Taylor Swift is the most globally popular artist we've had since the Beatles. <laughs> Why would I say that? Who gives a shit? And do you, do you know what her response was? Who gives a shit? Well, she's better than them. <laughs> I was she like, said that? Yeah. And I was like, that's fine. That's 100% fine. Why am I defending? What am I doing? So Why am I making myself the, older? Did she said Taylor Swift is better than the Beatles. Yeah. And you just let that one go by the goalie. Who cares? No, do, I, do, I don't care. I mean, do you think I should have argued? Do you think I should have sat her down? The only way to finally her? definitively tell if that's the case mm-hmm. is if Taylor Swift moves on from doing mm-hmm. Taylor's version of her own records mm-hmm. to Taylor's version of Beatles records. That sounds amazing. And then we'll know for sure who did Beatles songs better. That, the Beatles or Taylor Swift. Oh, so it's it's not like a home and home series. It's no. they all have to do so Taylor's version of Well, I don't think the Beatles can participate for the most Apparently, part. Apparently AI is helping them participate. I know. We're two weeks out from a new Beatles single. I saw uh did you see there was like a an AI version of like what it would have been like if Kurt Cobain sang Everlong? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why I'm laughing. I'm laughing. Is it because we live in hell, probably? That's uh, how was it? Unconvincing. Yeah. Yeah, the robots have a, a little bit of work to do. Not, a lot, not, not enough rasp. Can I, before we get into talking about film and TV uh-huh. on our pop culture podcast, I was, I, you know, I do have my TV on a lot recently due to sports. And so I was seeing a lot of commercials that I, I'm not often seeing due to my, due to my membership in the elite tiers of the streaming services. <laughs> but yeah. Not, but not Paramount. <laughs> I just want to say again. Saw a lot of ads during the gold. I still watch the gold. <laughs> uh, I'm the hero here. Uh, did you? There's an ad for a new phone by a company that we won't name. Mm-hmm. No free ads for the second biggest company in the world. But the the commercial is like, if you take a picture and you look like shit, you could swap your head out for a time when you look better. Yeah. How do you feel about this? I mean, I, I'm not like a big picture guy for oh, myself. Fair. Uh, you know... Whatever it takes to get you through the night. It, it, I, I, mm. are, you, are you not into that? No, that's horrible. I, like it, it, I, I just feel, and I, there are many reasons to think it's horrible, including, what did you say before? We live in hell. <laughs> that's one reason. <laughs> yeah. It's the sixth night at Freddy's um, for all of us every day. No, it's just like, it's hard enough to communicate to, to, to current generations that like photos used to be like, you took it, you waited one to six weeks, and then you'd be like, well... I guess I missed that opportunity to remember something. Sure. And then you live with it. Like, that's the picture. And then now we can do a little touch-up, do a little red-eye. That seems enough to me. I don't think we should be giving ourselves the tools for our own uh, mnemonic erasure. I just feel like we shouldn't have those tools. Well, you could say the same thing about Taylor's version, couldn't you? That she's going back and AI photoshopping her own work, you know? But it sounds the same. I was going to say that. It's... Listen, I, I actually I did yeah. a little A B testing of 1989, which did is not you? a record that like I mean I, that's actually probably my favorite Taylor Swift album. That's a great album, and uh, I think Out of the Woods is my favorite Taylor Swift song. So I was like, let me see, what, so you're just a Jack guy. What Taylor is doing mm-hmm. on the mix here, mm-hmm. and it really was not that different at all. No, I felt like Antonoff was like cooking a little bit more in the back. You know what I mean? He was just, just raising his like, own levels a little bit. You, oh, you think he turned the BVs up? Just a little bit. Yeah, to get the O's. I feel like anytime you can promote Bleachers featuring Jack Antonoff on a Taylor Swift record, you got to do it. Yeah. Um, Kaya, do you, would you like to weigh in on this? I don't mean to gender the conversation. I just didn't know if you had anything to... Um, yeah, I mean, as someone who spent like 12 hours of their Saturday... Here we go. ...this weekend making a Taylor Swift podcast about this very topic. Okay. Pretty good. Can you spoil any of that for it? What, what's your take on it? I think my take is the main differences I'm picking up on is with style. Style. Um, mm. Yeah. And... T- style sounds a little more organic. 
Um, I think the old version of style sounds a little bit better than this new version. Mm. I love that song. Why do you think that is? Oh, gosh. I mean, I'm not like really a a music-y person. I just think, I guess the old version sounds more like raw Mm -hmm. to me. Mm. I don't know. It has more, I don't know, just a certain quality that was not captured. And what's the last... Is Reputation going to get a Taylor's version? Yeah, that's yes. the last one that she that No, there's, she, has she to... still has to do debut as well. Oh, she hasn't done debut yet? Nope. Damn, slacker. What's, I know. What's your favorite Taylor Swift record? Uh, I really liked Evermore, and I also More really recent. liked Midnight's. Wow. wow. Recency bias. Uh, are um, Maybe. In your words, mm-hmm. why is Taylor Swift better than the Beatles? <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to plead the fifth on that one. I don't think Taylor Swift is better than the Beatles. I'll just throw that out there. She's got a lot of hits. Let's do... Should we conference my children in? I feel like that was very... (laughs) I just wanted to let them know. I just feel like I was subtweeted Uncle Chris, just saying. (laughs) Uncle Chris comes in hot. This episode is brought to you by Mint Mobile. If you've had it with your overpriced wireless plan with its insanely high monthly bill and unexpected overages, then listen to this. For a limited time, wireless plans from Mint Mobile are $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan. That's unlimited talk, text, and data for $15 a month. Wow, right? To get this new customer offer, just go to mintmobile.com slash watch. That's mintmobile.com slash watch. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower, above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for more details. You want to talk about Loki? I, I mean, the honest answer is not really, but yes, we should. I had hoped uh, mm-hmm. that you mm-hmm. and I could have a conversation about storytelling. Wow. Um, Great. I'd love to do I that. wanted to talk a little bit about... I don't even know if I'm actually on the right track here. Okay. Because you're the writer. Hmm. I'm just a guy pumping gas. By the way, untrue. You've been... People have been digging into the ringer, finding little bylines here and there these I days. Wrote, I wrote a bunch of blurbs for the the ringer's NBA ranked you for just, our top 100. You yeah. just reached into the bag and pulled that stuff out. That's great. Let me tell you, uh, that was not fun. Just on a <laughs> literal how to spend my time finding out whether or not my brain worked still, like that was not cool. Yeah, I, yeah. I, I, uh, I like I, I, I love the f- final product of sure. what we did, but I, I personally found out that it's much easier to bullshit with you than it is to come up with a lead sentence for a Victor Wembanyama. But you know, I recently wrote a, a piece of cultural criticism for the first time in many years. Yes, and that is not a muscle you can leave dormant. Yeah, for many years. Yeah, so. it's hard. Yeah, but it's hard. N- but totally make you it up on the You just forget that how, I mean, for me personally, mm-hmm. how many sentences that you say mm-hmm. in your real life that just end with an ellipsis? <laughs> <laughs> or, so that's interesting. Hopeful question mark. <laughs> yeah. Uh, here's my thing with Loki. Mm-hmm. I actually enjoyed this episode. I found it to be um, relatively compelling in terms of like, I thought it had some momentum. I did the the what they were running from, what the momentum, what the engine of the momentum was is is something we can talk about. But I I feel like they were obviously almost let me say, hopefully, ending a chapter of what this series is. Okay. And that the last two episodes of this season, and I if I had to guess wildly, the last two episodes of the series. Yeah, I don't think they're going back to this. Is one. going to be some sort of uh new world or next chapter for this for this kind of storytelling within the Marvel universe. Uh, so basically what, for people who don't know, and I, I actually, the reason why I'm saying this is that I think it'd be easy just to be like, spoilers for Loki going forward, but I, I kind of want to just like talk this out for myself mm-hmm. because I have a l- larger point I want to make. Great. All right, so essentially what you got here is a lot of stuff about time looms and and rings and whether the rings fit and whether or not they can. It's a lot of like puzzles that mm-hmm. essentially our main characters are trying to solve. And there's some nuggets in here. There's like a, a thing that is being treated like a relatively big reveal that Ravana was 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 basically a partner of Kang's. And that mm-hmm. he, or he Who Remains. He Who Remains. Mm-hmm. And that uh, He Who Remains wiped her memory to erase this memory of her contribution to this war for the for time. Can I ask just a quick sidebar? Yeah. If I invented a completely self-aware AI clock mm-hmm. that could do anything, including wipe everyone's memory with just a snap of a fingers. I would 
I feel like, is it good or bad that then you can just turn her off again and on again like an old Nintendo entertainment system? That's a great question. I was wondering that myself. Mm. I was like, it did seem a little deus ex machina that, Pretty that cool. OB could just be like, I could always reboot her. Probably know? could have done that <laughs> two weeks ago, but that's cool. Go on. So essentially what we have in this one is this chain of events finally coming to a head that started when Sophie killed He Who Remains. I, I, I am, I am, this is like my understanding of what's happening. I am grateful for this okay. because I have none. So at the end of last season, Sophie decides she's going to kill He Who Remains. That mm-hmm. sends off a chain of events that essentially leads to the meltdown and destruction of the TVA at the end of this episode. Right. There are several reactions to this event, to the crisis that the TVA is facing. Mm-hmm. Splitting TVA officials into various camps. There's Doc's who's Kate Dickey's character. Mm. There's Renslayer. Who's had a change of heart in between the episodes. Uh, she hasn't really had a change of heart as much as she has recognized that B-15, Wami Masako's character, mm-hmm. has more integrity than Renslayer and is seemingly uh. doing things for the right reasons, whereas Renslayer seems to be driven by either self-interest mm. or personal grudge against mm-hmm. he who remains or whatever it is. So uh, essentially... In this moment where the TVA seems to be falling apart, there's three different ideas about what to do about it. There's reform it, there is maintain the status quo, and there is burn it to the ground. And the Mm. various camps are in different sides of that argument. These are powerful ideas. That's the thing. Before they can decide how they're going to govern this whole thing, they need to save the brick and mortar, like of the TVA. They need right. to fix the shit that's going wrong. They need to fix the branches. They need to make sure the blast doors are closed. Like, all this stuff that mm-hmm. they have, they repeatedly outline, like, what they're doing. There is essentially, like, two strands of this episode, whereas one is this philosophical debate between Loki and Sophie about whether or not it's right to hope, whether you should be a nihilist and just try and go find yourself a McDonald's to hang out in. This was good because time travel stories have never had conversations like this before. So I was glad. But crucially, I think it's important to note that this is happening almost entirely separately from the, how do we fit this widget into this widget so that Mm -hmm. we can save the the universe. The instruction manual portion of the episode. Yes. And basically what we realize over the course of this episode, like most time travel storytelling, that all that is happening now has happened before and will happen again. And that there is like a loop element of it. If if Kiwi Kwan's character being named Ouroboros didn't tell you this in the first place, it's like mm-hmm. the, when Loki gets vaporized earlier in the season, he is in fact vaporized by himself. You know, like th- this kind of stuff oh, that's happening. Yeah. So we are essentially in a little bit of a loop, which makes me think that the TVA is not doomed Whereas in the end of the episode, a giant white light of energy seems to consume it. Mm -hmm. So, okay. What I wanted to ask you about Mm -hmm. is the difference between television and cinema or feature film storytelling and the use of this idea of a MacGuffin. Okay. So, in, say, Mission Impossible, that's a franchise that I think uses MacGuffins, I think, pretty effectively and, and, and routinely. So, you basically have... In the most recent Mission, Mission Impossible, there was this AI. But to, to go back to the one that I think is the sort of most notorious, it's the rabbit's foot. And that was an MI3. MI3. And the rabbit's foot is essentially never explained mm-hmm. what this thing is that is being chased all over the world by uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman's sort of evil group of terrorists versus the IMF led by Ethan Hawke. Ethan Hawke. Ethan Hunt. By the way, that's a reboot. But... Essentially, like, J.J. Abrams' Gambit in that movie was almost like, of course, it's nothing. It's never anything. It's a suitcase. It's a key. It's a map. It's a whatever. But It's a story starter. It's a story starter. And I think if you had a Mission Impossible 3 television show that Mm -hmm. went on for the better part of six to eight hours, the rabbit's foot would become more and more consuming because to fill out the story... You would have to get into what it is, what it does, why we want it, how it works, who's got it, what they need to make it work. You know, like there's all these little things that would have to go into it, I think, just to basically support a story of that length. So what we're seeing in Loki right now is essentially the problem with making MacGuffins 60 to 70% of what you're seeing on screen is because... Mm -hmm. Not only is it essentially nonsense. I mean, I'm sure that there are some people who are like, actually, that is how... But all the stuff about like the physical objects of the TBA and how they need to be fixed or maintained mm-hmm. or 
who can fi- do what and whether Victor Timely has this in his notebook and did his notebook exist before OB sent it to him and who is the true creator mm-hmm. of all this stuff. That's forced to take up so much more space. Yes. Because of the length and the sort of breadth of the show. Was that, would you think that's a fair assessment? Yeah, I think that the thing about movies in general and the thing about Mission Impossible Mission Impossible movies specifically, if not Tom Cruise's career in its entirety, is that they are based on kinetic energy. Mm-hmm. And they, they just burn themselves out with great um, excitement and bright lights and set pieces, and then in two hours you're done. And you don't have to think about it because it is moving forward the entire time, and you can relish all of the other details. TV storytelling doesn't do that. If you want to look at whether a MacGuffin can, can support multiple seasons of satisfying storytelling— Look at Lost. Mm-hmm. And I bring that up not to diminish Lost, which I love, but to say that the first part of it was establishing some MacGuffins, and then the rest of it, the real labor, was tying those MacGuffins into emotional stakes, character beats, and reasonable answers to satisfy the audience. Yeah, and it, if anything, I think Lost, later in its run, was starting to get dinged for not doing enough MacGuffin storytelling, or not doing enough work, quote-unquote, to answer every single question that had ever mm-hmm. been brought up in the history of Lost. Yes. And, I mean, this season of Loki is is just absolute manifested flop sweat. That is what it is. It is people running around, getting themselves worked up, situation after situation that is invented seemingly moments before to have a solve that comes up later in the episode. It, each week, I feel like we've missed an episode because everyone is in, in a completely different place and I don't understand their motivations, but they do. And they are very intent on giving us important monologues and racing as quickly as possible to save the day through something that they suddenly just discovered or perhaps that someone has brought from 19th century Chicago that plugs perfectly into my machine. <laughs> right. Sure. Fine. So much labor, though, is exhausted on the screen to build up anything worth caring about here. You and I watched the first season of Loki. I loved the first season of, of Loki. At no point in my watching of that first season would, if you had interrogated me about it, would I have said, the reason I love it is because of the hundreds of thousands of people who work at the TVA. They're good people who are taken from the timeline unfairly. And this is a workplace I believe in and care about. Absolutely not. It was about the three to four characters that the show was focused on and what the TVA was doing to them. Yeah. This has inverted that. And, you know, credit where credit is due that Eric Martin and the other writers who developed the season took as much time as they could, which is not very much in a six-episode season, to create a few other people who work there Yeah, to make us have some connection to it. I mean, Casey was there the first season. He's a lot more there this season. But Docs and... Uh, the Bradley, I call him. I can't X5. remember. His, yeah, X5. These are Raphael new, Casal's character. The, these are new inventions. When you get to the moment when Renslayer savagely murders 40 people who would rather die by being crushed to death together than join her, I'm not sure what she's doing, but join her. This moment is played off of Raphael Cassell's face. Good actor. He seems pretty bummed that he just watched 40 people get crushed to death. Yeah. But who are they? Why did they make this choice? You know, when the TVA gets wiped out, this is played as if this is Starship Enterprise immolating midway through Star Trek II. It's not. I don't understand. I don't understand, especially because fundamentally, this is a show and a larger cinematic project that is now about always getting do-overs, always getting extra lives, always having variants. There's always another chance. So everything slips through your fingers. But I appreciate your point about MacGuffins and things, but it's just... It's just this busyness just whirring around on the screen well, that also, I'm really having trouble with. It's a MacGuffin that, when you're watching Mission Impossible 3, mm-hmm. and I don't mean to be bringing this up just as like, well, if this is more like Mission Impossible. But it still feels grounded. Mm-hmm. It feels like whatever is happening with this rabbit's foot, it's important enough that Philip Seymour Hoffman has started to kill IMF agents over it, Right. That there is, and that the IMF is willing to go to extremes, like possibly almost dropping him out of an airplane mm-hmm. to get it back. The same thing is kind of like the case when you're watching those first few phases of Marvel, and it kind of culminates for me a lot in Civil War. Mm-hmm. You know, for as interesting as and fun as Endgame and Infinity War was, it kind of culminates for me, like in terms of my interest with Civil War, because 
it gets to the root of like what these characters, how they differently see the world, mm-hmm. right? And it is, while not really close to our world, at least superficially our world. Mm-hmm. And we joke a lot about Sokovia, but Sokovia is a great MacGuffin. The idea that this thing happened and that there has now been this fallout from an event that has changed the way that these people see their but, jobs. But to be clear, I, I agree with you. It's that post-Sokovia changed the people we know and care about. It wasn't that dropping a country, up, lifting a country up into the sky and dropping it made me feel sad for the Sokovians. Yes. It was about what that event did to them. You bring up Mission Impossible 3, and I think it, it's worth pointing out, one of the most important pieces of Mission Impossible 3 is something that is not going to be thought of that fondly or even referenced that much. And I, honestly, the next four to five Mission Impossibles have had a complicated relationship to it. But it is um, representative of the kind of roll up your sleeves, let's get in the story minds, and A plus B equals C work that J.J. Abrams does and that TV writing can do at its best, which is, how does Mission Impossible 3 begin? Ethan Hunt is married. Mm-hmm. Ethan Hunt has left this world behind. He has tied himself to something that matters to him and his character. Yeah. We have not met Michelle Monaghan before, but we have met Ethan Hunt before, and thus we care about her because he cares about her. And then everything that comes after puts that relationship at risk and puts him and his heart at risk. The world of Loki is so glib and so post-meaning, like much of the MCU now, that there is absolutely nothing, on no matter how many timelines you branch off, to root him in anything that matters. This isn't even the same Loki that died at the beginning of Infinity War. This is the, a second one. And now in, in this episode, we get potentially a third one. Mm-hmm. So it's all just floating in space. You could say, I love Owen Wilson. I love Mobius. You could have him be like, I wish I was jet skiing, but he's nobody and he hasn't been anyone yet. And you can take Wunmi Masako, who I think is a really good actor, and I'm going to start a GoFundMe for her so she can just (laughs) get something else to do because this is just a a crime. You can have, you can play her emotional face as much as you want talking about hope and all these people dying and what it means, but I don't know what you're talking about. And then, I guess maybe you have Sylvie, who, if the, the, it, she's Loki, right? Yeah. So she also, theoretically, in her universe, was a god, and there was a Thor and yeah, an Odin. Renslayer takes her out of the Asgard that she's growing up in. So she just, she, now she just seems like kind of a sad and mean lady. I, I don't get what she represents. I don't get what she brings. And, Frankly, I don't think Sofia DiMartino does either. But if that connection, that Loki was in love with himself, was meant to be the emotional bedrock of anything, they've squandered that too. Maybe because it's super weird and creepy. But this is how you get something that is so untethered from, any, to me, anything recognizable. And if you are like hardcore time loom guy, yeah, then maybe there's more here. But um, Well, it depends. I would be curious to know if there were people out there who are like, for me, it's the inverse. Mm. What's interesting are the scenes of Casey and OB drawing diagrams and mm. trying to figure out who's going to have to walk across the bridge. But I thought that the show, one of the more amusing parts of the season was like Victor Timely getting turned into spaghetti mm-hmm. the second he tries to go make this heroic charge. Now, I thought it was A, funny because they spent 40 minutes planning something. Mm-hmm. And then it ends in two seconds. Yeah, I like that. I also thought it was funny that this guy who they've spent three episodes building up was vaporized. I think it's... In the back of my head, I cannot get the Jonathan Majors off-screen story out of my head about... Mm -hmm. Are they just going to, like, wipe this character from the books or recast it or do something different with this? And I can't tell how much of Loki is being done in service of that. And then, furthermore, like... It speaks to a point that we've hit on before, and I think people are like, why do you guys talk about stuff that you don't like? Or, mm-hmm. or you know, why do you keep going back to this thing if it's not of interest to you anymore? It is of interest to me because I think it goes back to the question I had at the beginning, which is I'm very fascinated by storytelling questions. Yeah. Like about decisions to five, six, seven years ago when Kevin Feige and, this, and the Marvel group decided, here's what we're going to do. We're going to follow Guardians, and Galaxy, Guardians of the Galaxy into space we are going to bring in a science fiction element to this story. And the future of this is multiversal. 
which cynically allows us to constantly recycle mm-hmm. characters and actors and storylines and do different versions of things. It's the constant reboot, but also gets us out of, you know, what's Wakanda's relationship to Sokovia's relationship to the Avengers Tower and the real-worldness of the Marvel mm-hmm. story that was up until then. So I think it's a really interesting storytelling decision, regardless of whether or not I find it pleasant to watch or, or execute it well. I think... Oh, I appreciate that. And I think it's a it's a healthier footing for the conversation going forward since there are two more of these, he said excitedly. Um, the, in terms of the Jonathan Majors and Kang part of it, we don't have any information. There are no tea leaves necessarily for us to read. But Disney did pull, since we last recorded, Magazine Dreams, mm-hmm. which is an independent film that I think Fox Searchlight was uh, planning to release this year. Um Apparently, it's an, it's an incredible Jonathan Majors performance and was highly tipped to be released and get him a nomination at the Oscars. It's been pulled from the schedule uh, ahead of his assault trial that, that's looming. If they're pulling his movies, you could plausibly wonder if he is being pulled from the timeline via this show and via post-production on this show. It's possible. We could emerge from this with a new actor as Kang. It's, I don't think that will happen on the TV on the, t- on the on the TV box, but it could. So it's worth it it it's it's worth bearing in mind. I think the other thing to your point is, I, I, I the reason why this show is making me more animated and more hostile than usual is partly because I loved the first season. Yeah, but partly I think it's I don't know. This is tipping a little bit towards our conversation that we're going to have about the um about the pigeon tunnel. Mm-hmm. But in the pigeon tunnel. David Cornwell, a.k.a. John le Carre, says that like he believes there is truth in the world, even though he is himself sort of a trickster. And I think it is important to say that, that this is bad. I really do, because it's bad in an empty and I think overly busy, cynical way that deeply bums me out. I'm not saying it's bad because I think comic book stories are bad or I'm tired of them. I think Marvel's things can be good. I think they can be great. But I think this is revealing a kind of an emptiness at the heart of the project where we are that is, I mean, worrisome because this is the wrong word because I'm not actually worried about the Walt Disney Corporation and their financial security. But there's so much talent and so much money and so many worthwhile performers trapped on this soundstage right now spinning out. There's a couple of moments that are kind of, it's kind of beyond belief how much like talent is present. I took like, a screenshot. Yeah, there's like a, and I, I've I've sung the praises of Benson and Moorhead, and they're going to be directing the reshot Daredevil episodes. It sounds like so they're in in the Marvel cut. Mm-hmm. They, it's like these guys directing Jonathan Majors, Kiwi Kwan, Owen Wilson, Tom Hiddleston, Owen Wilson, like all of these people in like single frames when they're mm-hmm. walking around the the sort of the diagram of the loom that they've built. And I was like, Jesus Christ, this is like a pretty heavy one through six lineup. And they're, and they're just saying nonsense on a streaming TV show. It's a, it's a very weird thing to take in. And I, I'm glad you mentioned Benson and Moorhead. That's their, they got that right. right? Mm-hmm. Um, there are a couple shots in here that are really clever and really compelling. There, there was the, the scene where, the Loki with the tight sleeves is purged by the Loki with the... Yeah, and then the phone. And then the phone, and we follow the phone cord. I mean, that's a little sign of life. That's a little flicker yeah. that someone's being creative and thoughtful and, and trying to tell a story. And I and I, I, I know that I, I get worked up about this show, and I believe, you know, it's hard to walk back what I said last week, what I said it was a catastrophe, which I kind of believe. Um, no, I do believe. Yeah, but, well, you but just it, said it was flop sweaty and it, and it's important I, to say it's bad. I, yes, but I, I don't but, think it's good. I just think it's very interesting to watch yes, but, somebody try and unknot what they've it, got here. Yes, but I think the entire thing is knots. And and um but that said, every so often, due to the talent involved, um I, I feel a connection to the intent. And I feel like when they shot that scene and Sylvia op- is opens the door and she sees Loki, but it's a different Loki, and the lighting is the way it is. You, you see why the mm-hmm. actors bought in and what they were giving in that moment. That, or, or even the feeling of despair during the, it's a very well shot, you know, face to face. The camera moves from all the character principals' faces as they're about to be blinked out of existence or whatever. And like everyone's giving it their all and they're selling this moment as an existential moment. But it's going to blink back on in a week. 
don't know. It's weird. I just feel so completely divorced from a conversation with this this entertainment behemoth. Where I think some of the some of the some of the chatter coming out of this episode is like, wow, the MCU just hit an inflection point. Well, I think it's actually been a really divisive episode. I've noticed that some people online were like, this was they really like took took a huge leap here, mm-hmm. and that this could change everything. And then I saw some people like being like, this is. That what a giant waste of time. People who are like Marvel heads are like, mm. what a giant waste of time. So, I, I don't know. I, I don't know. I, my feeling is, I like, I like to be entertained. I like silly things. I like bright, shiny things. I that not everything has to be super intellectual or you know a, a probing interrogation of John Le Carre. Like, doesn't all have yeah. to be that. But I, my genuine feeling about the MCU right now is like, until you're serious, I don't feel like we have to take you seriously anymore. Yeah, I mean, obviously, we've like a couple of times been like, maybe we shouldn't talk about this stuff or watch but, this but stuff. As you anymore. said, we got ten days till something else comes on, so here we are circling this particular. No, I think I just thought I thought it would be interesting to discuss when you've got something as sort of honestly like speculative and and theoretical as time travel. And you're spending so much time acting as if basically like anyone can follow what these people are doing. But taking up eight minutes of screen time with Kiwi Kwan talking about like, we have to do this, but we might have to do that. But I don't know if it's going to work because it's all theoretical. And you're like, it's all theoretical. You guys are in a fucking space station weaving time together. But what's like, the history of time travel shows or movies or storytelling of which there are great highs and some some real lows the general through line is the wish fulfillment aspect of it. You are with a protagonist who's like, I wish that I could, or I've suddenly gotten the ability to move through right. time to undo something or see something or 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 fix something that, that needs to be fixed. This is time travel storytelling from the perspective of the time machine. That's not interesting. Yeah. It, it is a fundamental, like just wrong way entry point because these people can just open doors whenever and wherever they want. Yeah. And then sometimes Miss Minute says they can't, and then they reboot her, and then they can do it again. What's interesting about time travel is the moral and emotional stakes of people who are doing the traveling. Yeah, it's, all, and it's, it's Marty McFly inventing rock and roll. That's... It's always been Marty <laughs> McFly inventing rock and roll. A, 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 an important cultural corrective to the myth that it came from blues musicians. Okay, whether or not we talk about Loki that's uh, anymore, that's to be debated decided. Uh, let's talk about somebody who is very near and dear to our hearts, which is John Carey, one of our favorite authors collectively. Watching Errol Morris's documentary, which has been on Apple TV since I think October 20th, so it's been out for like a week or so, a week, yeah, was a really weird experience for me because I think it's counterintuitive that you would, if you love something, mm-hmm. if you're a fan of something, you'd think that you would want to see as much stuff about that thing as possible. And I find for some reason as I get older, but maybe there's just something inside of me that's always been this way, that that is not the case for me. That you like a little bit of mystery. more passion I have for something, maybe the less I want to examine it from a distance. Mm. And I kind of felt this way about some of the stuff some of the work that came out of um, Anthony Bourdain's life mm. after he after he died. So when various books or projects were kind of enacted about him, I was kind of like, I don't know. I have my relationship to this, to him. I don't know if I want to know everything about him. I don't know if mm-hmm. I want his last days completely unpacked for me. I don't know if I... I want to kind of have, maintain my personal kind of lens that I view him through mm-hmm. and not have that affected. And I was a little bit nervous going into Pigeon Tunnel that my relationship to John le Carre and the John le Carre in my head was going to get fucked up by Errol Morris interrogating someone who is now passed on. Mm-hmm. So this is a movie that's been several years in the making and John le Carre passed away in 2020? At the end of 2020. And, and so obviously... The conversations are from 2019. Yeah. Um, I didn't have that problem with Pigeon Tunnel. My problem with Pigeon Tunnel was that I didn't learn anything. And I I have like, I'm having a weird reaction to this because it's a John le Carre documentary made by Errol Morris. It's everything I should like. Yeah. And as I was watching it, I was, I was sort of left a little bit flat. What did, what did you think? Well, let's, I want to take one step back because I feel like this is, we're, we're down our own pigeon tunnel and I want to make sure whatever listeners stuck around after we just, after I, I bodied a defenseless show for the fourth straight week. <laughs> I'm sorry um, about that. So, John Le Carre is one of our favorite novelists. 
Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, the spy who came in from the cold, perfect spy. Um, Little Jarmer Girl. Yeah. And Night and his work has been adapted more recently, like Night Manager. Um, and famously, if you clue into him, you know, there's certain things about his biography that are are well known, like that he did time himself in both MI5 and MI6 in the British Secret Service, thus granting his writing some imprimatur of authenticity mm-hmm. and and uh insight. Um also that he that his father was a infamous uh con man and trickster and he had a complicated relationship with his father that was fictionalized in the perfect spy and maybe throughout his own life and career. And mm-hmm. then Errol Morris is a famous and celebrated documentarian known for kind of the documentary's interrogation, right? From the Thin Blue Line, which sort of drew a lot of attention to him, to uh, Fog of War and... Known Unknown, yeah. Yes, the the Rumsfeld documentary, Fast, Cheap, and Out of Control, uh, among many, many others. So this is a collision on paper between, between a master questioner and a master evader, right? And what I was struck by, and, and I think this is a worthwhile 90 minutes of anyone's time. Mm-hmm. It is really sharply made. It's interestingly made in the sense that, like, it is following what is of interest to Errol Morris. It's very um, driven by by the questions he wants to ask and what he finds illuminating about this whole circumstance. Um, and David Cornwell, a.k.a. John le Carre, is phenomenal uh, interviewee. Just he's he's an amazing subject and an amazing you're right an amazing interview partner his face the way that he speaks the way that he addresses both Errol Morris and the camera um, the life that he's led is it's just it's wild and and he didn't give that many interviews or that many interviews on camera especially in the last few decades there's footage in the movie of him like on American chat shows and things in the 60s and 70s so. I think, it, and the Philip Glass score, you know, for all the hundred foot waveheads mm-hmm. who love who love those instrumentals. I mean, it is it is an expertly made thing that I really really enjoyed. But I was interested to hear your reaction to it because there were things in it that I responded to and loved. And then in the hours since I watched it yesterday, since I watched it, a lot of it's starting to fall away because a to you sort of have to care about this subject. I feel like you have to kind of have read a Le Carre novel. It doesn't spend very much time with his actual fiction. In fact, no. one of the things it does a lot of is cut to BBC and cinematic mm. adaptations of his work to sort of fill in interstitial moments between conversations. So you get a lot of The Spy Who Came In From The Cold and Tinker Tailor and Smiley's People and Perfect Spy mm-hmm. adaptations that mm-hmm. there, have been, there have been. But I counted and I think there's only four novels mentioned sometimes like in 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 the yes like sometimes there are these there are these um you know cutaways or collages mm-hmm. that allude to other titles or other works from his career i guess i so it, it, and then um and he says pretty powerful wild things that i think are really thought provoking about like you know if is your if if life is in pursuit of a truth almost in the way a spy would be pursuing um, a piece of intelligence, like into the locked box. But is the lock? What if the locked box is, is the heart of all humans? Yes. Is actually empty. I mean, he says this he's is, he's like, I don't know if I ever loved my father or if I if I, I don't love know what it. love I is. I don't know what love is. You know, like he has he, plenty of personal it, revelations. I don't mean to make it sound like no, this was but, a haphazard look at him. But I, I guess where I'm at with it, and I found this, and even this is kind of interesting to me. So near the end of it, there's a, a suggestion that there's some combativeness between interviewer mm-hmm. and subject that like that that Lacare having worked in the secret service himself turns it back on Errol Morris whose voices throughout and he says at the end things that he wasn't going to he came in planning to be very honest because he admires his work but there's some things that he simply won't talk about because he's not interested in talking about them or they're not of interest and he says I'm not going to talk about my sex life I'm not going to and I'm watching and I'm like oh that's you know he's a patrician british gentleman close to 90 at this point and I am not as deep into the Lacare uh uh, cinematic and real life universe as you are. So I didn't know that one of the big things since he died was that his, that he was a meddler in his own biographies to the point where he obscured that basically he had 40 years of really wild ass infidelities Yeah, that much of like many of his research trips that fueled some of his later post cold war books were written off as research trips, but really he was just hooking up yep. and having affairs and, and then a lot of his life not on the page was spent 
trying to tidy that up and keep that quiet. And that even his bio- official biographer agreed to keep those things quiet. And then when he died in the la- then a year or two ago, or this year even, wrote like an addendum to the biography right. being like, oh, this guy was wild AF. And if you read his novels, yes, that's in there. It's all in there. Yeah. He's, he's in the, and so that's And so the, the idea that he's smiley and that there was a Bill Hayden that he was capped, and I'm talking about characters from Tinker mm-hmm. Taylor, it's like, no, they're all him. He's, he's his father. Yes. He's, he's Ronnie. You know, he is Hayden. He is Smiley. He is Anne, who is Smiley's constantly cheating wife. You know, like, he is all of these people. That's why these characters are given so much life. And, these, you know. and that's the thing that I'm sort of bumping up against having experienced this, which is to say, is Errol Morris's theory? Because then he doesn't ask about that stuff. Like, no. he keeps sort of accusing him, or not accusing him, presenting him with the possibility that he, Le Carre, is himself a trickster, that he himself is unreliable. And to which I say, yes, and? Like, he wrote books. There's a tension that- in, the, in the movie where the idea that um, Le Carre is, is, has, is responsible for this huge betrayal in, in, in his life, that he has perpetrated a huge betrayal. And it's kind of unclear as to whether he's it's referring about. to mm-hmm. this incident that happened when he was working in the Secret Service and uh, something happened with somebody, a person he was spying on at school. I think, I think that was when he was in university. I think it was before. Maybe it was part of his recruitment. He was, on, he was doing it on behalf of. While he was in university. Of the government, yeah. But I, so I'm, I'm dancing around because mm-hmm. I don't want to give it yes. away. That's obviously not what yes. Errol Morris knows. You know what I mean? Because at the very end of the film, John Le Carre is like, I just don't want to talk about my sex life, nor would you want to talk about yours. Yes, and if you are a casual Apple TV Plus viewer who's like, I like, I know, I've seen Errol Morris films, I've seen adaptations of John Le Carre's work, I'll check this out. You might not know what they're talking about for the entirety of the movie. Yeah. And so I think it's there's a fundamental flaw in the premise that I find really interesting, honestly. I mean, I didn't pay for this movie. I'm thrilled it exists. Um, which is, what are you accusing this author of betraying and what does he owe anyone? Because in his books, the, the, it's all there. As you said, it's all there. All sides of, a, of betrayal, both personal, professional, governmental, what have you. It's all there in these rich books that we'll have forever. We are not members of his family. We've never met this guy. Now we never will. So who does he owe anything to? And the movie doesn't seem to be that interested in it. Yeah, maybe what it is is that I realize about myself that as I was going through this film, and I haven't read the biography of John McCary. Have you read The Pigeon Tunnel, the sort of, I'm going to fight my biography with my own weird fictionalized memoir? I have it, and I read a little bit of it, but to me... Look, it is transactional. I've decided what I want my relationship to this person to be and to this artist to be. He has more psychological depth in A Perfect Spy than I could ever get from his own autobiography or from a biography of him or a documentary of him. Yeah. Like, that to me is one of the most profound books about tr- truth, about lying, about fathers and sons, about you know, national sort of allegiances. Like, there are so many things in A Perfect Spy. It's like, I I don't even know that you could even capture it if you made a film about what that movie is about, Mm -hmm. what that book is about. Yes. It kind of gets back to my original point where it's like, what do you want to know about the people who make the art that you love? And I don't mean that in a separating art from the artist way, which is a separate conversation. I'm talking about literally like, do you want to know what Anthony Bourdain did in the days in between his television show? Do you want to know what right. John Le Carre did when he was on quote-unquote research trips? I suppose there is a passing interest, but I was way more interested in what real-life events, because this is a guy also that's not really remarked upon in this film at all, but his life completely changed when the Cold War ended. Yes, this is, I, I'm glad you brought this and up. His and his work his, completely his, changed when the Cold War ended. And a lot of his books are about guys who are so basically tied up in the idea, their entire identity was tied up in the West versus the East. And when that collapses, them trying to sort through the fractured world order that's come out of that. And that's not touched on at all. It's it, just this kind of repetitive motif of the pigeons. It, and that that transition is incredibly profound and rare. And I'm not saying his best books are post Cold War because I haven't. I mean, first of all, I haven't read all of his books. Yeah. But but 
the fact that he was able to do that and have his work become to be equally compelling at the very least, and in some ways more insightful with more depth because of the regret and sadness and folly that was exposed all, by all these people. All post- of the, all, many of the protagonists in some of those later books are angry, mm-hmm. disaffected, isolated men who have been left behind by the way the world used to be, but then find when they reemerge that the world is much like it was. Yes, and I think the most interesting things about the film are when he talks about who these men in these rooms are and what the world actually is from his perspective, both in terms of having been in these rooms and also having been close to 90 years old. Mm-hmm. I think that's really moving. And I, but I think your question is also a really good one, which is what, is the, what does the artist owe us if they've given us all this art? Now, you could have a passing interest in it. In, you know, it's salacious or it helps fill in some gaps or you, you, you are, I think we have a reason it's not unreasonable to be interested in what fuels people who make the things that interest us. You know, are they tortured? Did they, were they happy? Whatever. That's all of interest. And you, you mentioned Bourdain. It's a good example. I mean, I, I'm, I'm where, where you are with him. Like I am grateful for every single thing that he gave us or that he gave me. Um, I was also really compelled by Lori Wolliver's book and also another biography, posthumous biography, In the Weeds, written by Tom Vitale, and he came on the podcast, I talked to him about it, that, you know, that kind of filled in the gaps about someone whose narrative was very, um, sort of facile, right? This idea that he was an addict, and then he got clean, and then he traveled the world with joy and opened all the doors for us, and it was just moving in one direction, getting better and better. That's impossible. That's a fiction. And you and I love fiction. Mm-hmm. But it was interesting to be to have that complicated by the books that came out after his death. The thing about Le Carre is like, it seems as if this was a movie based on a flawed premise, that he was going to reveal himself to be a trickster in some way that would affect us as fans of the art. When I don't see what that would be. And it's been interesting to see Errol Morris, you know, when this came out, is doing press for it. And he did... Uh, David Marchese does these incredible Q&As in New York Times. Uh, Pretty much week to week, they're all worth reading. He's one of the best, if not the best interviewers we have. And Errol Morris submitted himself to one. And it's immediately combative in a pretty interesting way that reveals a lot about Errol Morris's mindset and informs to some degree like why maybe the movie is the way it is and takes the position it takes or doesn't. I thought it was a if you see, if you have seen this, I recommend reading this yeah. afterwards. But it's 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 an odd thing. Like it's you said it at the beginning. I, I feel like I've looped back to the beginning, no, which is I, you I tell just, me this thing exists. Yeah. I'm like, let's go. I'm happy it exists, but it's unclear what it's given us. I'm trying to I'm trying to meet it on its own terms and not be like, here's what I wanted a John Le Carre documentary mm. to be. I actually don't want a John Le Carre documentary. Is what I found out. I don't really. I think I want to know John Le Carre, not David Cornwall. Is yes. guess is guess where I wound up. I want to know about some of the choices that the writer made over the course of this storied career. But I'm not so interested in him still grappling upon his, you know, the end of his life. What it turns out with the myth of his father, because I feel like my relationship to John Le Carre or David Cornwall or however you want to put it, with his father is encapsulated in a perfect spy. Yes, he, he, he gave it to us. And I feel like, you know, behind the scenes, let's dig into it, types of projects are maybe often more rewarding when the subject in question was never able to achieve their goals or was thwarted from their goals or cut off too soon. Or you could sort of find out what, what was fueling them, but also what stopped them from doing X, Y, or Z thing. Like, regardless of what appears to be a pretty wild personal life that was off limits for this interview, he achieved his artistic goals. Mm-hmm. I mean, he even says in this movie, it, it, you know, that despite fighting against it and feeling like an interloper for decades, that he he is an artist. Yeah. He recognizes that he was an artist, and that he was happiest making his art, and he gave it to us. So I don't feel like there are any unanswered questions there, right? Just in Loki. Just in, well, what are the Lacare variants where he does become a solicitor, yeah. like he told his father. Or he does take a few fivers out of the bag of purloined money from the racetrack. Exactly. Would that be of any interest? I'm, and, I'm sure it would be. And was he Kang? <laughs> was he the new Kang? We'll wrap it up there. Be back on Thursday. Who knows? More lessons in chemistry? 
wow. This is, should we just should we just do it? We before we started recording, we suggested that we would do a sit-in until TV got good again. We would just stay here in this. Yeah, I said we would we would we would do like a, a hunger strike until TV got good again in ten days. Caius kept quiet when you said that. <laughs> I think she's got some pretty sick plans for the weekend. Uh, I will see you on Thursday. Thanks for chatting with me today. Well, you know, it, both it was a pleasure and also a contractual obligation. Bye, guys.